And once again, good morning and happy new year to everyone. Okay, you were here last week. Well, let me just say this. Last Wednesday, we did enter into a new year, 2020, as we said last time. Uh, and we are, if you're new with us, we are in the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, but we've taken a little break uh, to do a, a little series for the new year. And uh, so, uh, as we said last time, every year, new year brings with a new hope. The hope that this year is going to be, you know, better than last year. Primarily, the hope I think that many Christians have is that God is going to give them strength in this new year to finally see victory over things like alcohol, drugs, pornography, anger, other besetting sins, or the hope that their relationship with the Lord will experience revival. I think there's a, a lot of Christians who are feeling kind of dry in their walk and hearts seem a little cold and so uh, their hope is that this year that God would revive them and set their heart on fire and return that passion for the Lord they once had. It could take the form that this new year, the hope that it's bringing, uh, could take the form that uh, some hope for maybe a new ministry opportunity. You've been praying about what God has for you in the way of ministry, and maybe this is going to be the year, and I believe it will be, that uh, he will open the door for that ministry and or maybe it's uh, that you'll uh, the hope that God is going to provide a new job, or if you have a job, maybe a new uh, promotion in your current job. I know that we have some singles in the church, and it is their prayer that God would lead into their life uh, a a new person where they've been praying for maybe um, a marriage partner, and so they're praying that this year would be maybe a year that they would see that. Or um, if you're married and your marriage is been, you know, on the rocks that this would be the year that God would, uh, you know, heal your marriage, uh, strengthen it, or if you have a wayward child that the Lord will bring that child to him or uh, cure some disease that maybe you or a loved one has. I mean, the old saying that hope springs eternal is especially true at the start of every new year. And so this morning, as we stand at the beginning of this new year, I know that there is probably many, maybe all of you in this room in some way would like to see some things different. Uh, you have hope that, you know, there's going to be some changes in your life this year. As we said last time, the problem uh, is that for many people, when they enter into a new year, all they do is hope that things are going to change. All they do is engage in, you know, wishful thinking that things will be different, but they never actually do anything tangible to bring about any change. And let me just say this before we continue. The power to change comes from God. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions because those don't work. Where I'm promising God I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that or I'm going to change. You can't use the flesh. That's what a New Year's resolution is. It's using your own strength, drawing from your own strength uh, to uh, bring about a promise you're making to God. You can't use the flesh to conquer the flesh. So the power to change comes from God. The desire for change is what God's looking for in our hearts. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who, and I've seen them over the years, it, it, they're not really thinking about holiness or a, ministry, you know, a life for God that's deeper or a ministry that's really being used that's powerful to bring Him glory. I've heard them say, that, well, I'm saved and that's all I care about. And, and so that's pretty sad to me, all right? Um, but God, God looks at, why, why would God work to change a person who has that kind of heart? They don't really want to change. Uh, but if you're here this morning and you want to see change in whatever area it is, 
That is what this, this series is focusing on. What we need to do, assuming we have the will to change, uh, what we need to do to bring about change, ultimately God has got to give the power, we know that. But um, what's in our hearts? And be because, though, that a lot of times Christians, now let's just talk about Christians, when they enter a new year, they, they, they hope things are going to change. They, they have wishful thinking that, you know, things will be different. But because they don't take any tangible steps to bring about this change, as we said last time, it doesn't take long for the hope of a new year to become the same old defeat and discouragement of the past. So what do we do to make this year different? Well, to begin with, we need to understand that change only becomes a reality. Listen, when we get serious about it, when we get serious about it and set our sight firmly upon it and by that i mean guys changes in life come from knowing first of all what the problems are you know there are times when we don't even know there is a problem often god has to show us there's a problem because we're blind to it all right but oftentimes we know there's problems in this area or that so what a lot of people do is they, they identified the problem but they don't take responsibility for it they make excuses uh, or they try to blame somebody else. This is a big thing in our country, this blame shifting, where people don't take responsibility for their own problems, for their own shortcomings, for the things that need to change. This is what we need. We need to set our sights clearly. We need to have a heart that truly is getting serious about change, has gotten serious, but also that we need to identify what the problem is. And when we do, we don't push it off into somebody else. We, uh, we know what the problem is, and now we're praying about what we need to do to bring about change. And again, this means that we see clearly. If we're going to take aim <laughs> at change, we have to see clearly. Otherwise, as the old saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you'll probably hit it. And that's what we don't want to do this new year. We don't want to aim at nothing. We want to aim at the problem and by God's grace see it changed where defeat becomes victory, where carnality becomes maturity, that kind of thing. But we have to uh, know what it is, get it in our sights, and begin to focus on that. Um, and so because of that, we have undertaken the series, all right? And uh, like most of the series I do, I intend it to be maybe a couple messages. Well, this one probably will be on the order of four, okay, because that's just your pastor. Um but we've undertaken a series we've entitled 2020 Vision, right? Your 2020. 2020 Vision for the New Year, or simply put, 2020 Vision for 2020. As we said last week, if we're going to see positive change take place in our lives this year, it's critical that we see clearly. Now, we've just talked about that. we got to identify the problem, but also we need to see clearly what's really important and worth pursuing in this new year. To do that, we must see this year, and guys, every year after it, of course, through the lens of God's Word. It's only when we, we view the new year and life itself through the lens of God's Word that things come into focus and become clear. Now, as we said last week, there are skeptics that would say, well, why the lens of God's Word? Why not the lens of this ideology or, or that principle or whatever else? Because very simply, God is our creator. He made us. And no one knows us better than he does. Therefore, no one knows how we function better than the one who made us. 
Now, last week we entered into a little uh, analogy that I'll just briefly share with you. We just passed Christmas, and, uh, you know, Christmas, you know, you maybe got uh, something you were looking for in the way of a piece of technology. As I said last week, I, I love technology, and uh, technology is, uh, is complicated, okay? And um, if we look at God as our manufacturer, all right, our manufacturer, then the Bible becomes the manufacturer's handbook. And where I'm going with this idea of, of technology and getting something, a manufacturer always includes with their product, especially a complicated uh, piece of equipment, again, like maybe a cell phone or, or something along those lines, right? They always include with their product an instruction manual, right? A handbook. And of course, when you open up, the very first thing it tells you is who made the product. You open your Bible, what's the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, what? God made the heavens and the earth, right? Also in these little product handbooks, we uh, see how that the manufacturer tells us, you know, um, how the product works, how to care for it, and usually contains a section somewhere maybe near the back that tells you how to troubleshoot problems that may arise and what to do to fix them. Well, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, 14. In other words, we are a complicated piece of technology. And only the one who made us, our manufacturer, God Almighty, has the expertise to tell us how our lives are designed to operate, how we are to care for them spiritually and emotionally, to ensure smooth operation and maximum productivity, and especially how to troubleshoot problems that will arise in the course of life, and they will arise, all right? And when they do, what to do to fix the problem, biblically speaking, to fix what is broken and bring us back to wholeness and full working order. So the Bible in general is God's instruction manual for our lives, which you've followed, and the more you follow it, the more your life is going to work the way God designed it, right? Just like the more you follow the handbook of whatever piece of technology you've just received, it's going to work according to how well you do it, use it according to what the manufacturer says, specifications and all. But uh, the Bible is God's uh, uh, instruction manual for our lives in general, and um, it we follow it. The things that may be complicated to the people of this world will be fairly simple. I'm not saying it's things like marriage will be easy to live, but fairly simple to understand, right? Uh, but the more we follow God's word, his instructions, the more we are going to benefit. Our lives will be what God designed them to be. Look, as we said last week, you only have two choices, okay? Either you follow the wisdom of God as written in his word, or you're left to the wisdom of this world, which James says the wisdom of this world is earthly, sensual, and demonic, right? And leads to all kinds of bad things. But the wisdom that's from above, he said, the wisdom of God is peaceable, fruitful. It's going to bring health and healing into your life. It's going to be something that will benefit you. Now, as we said last time, you're thinking, okay, so the Bible becomes God's lens through which I view this, this new year, all right, to bring about change and things like that. Um, the Bible's a pretty big book, okay? Uh, in fact, if you're Jewish, 
uh, and you grew up in a Jewish home, went to Jewish school, you realize that the Old Testament, our Old Testament, your Tanakh, your Jewish Bible, contains 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments to read, let alone to know how to do them, right? So a lot of times people will think, well, okay, the Bible is God's lens. It's good. I know that. I know I need to read it, and eventually I'll begin to, to understand it more and more. But for right now, is there one thing, one principle, one command in the Bible that God's trust is above all the others that I can you know, start with? Maybe the most important <laughs> commandment of them all. And, and yes, there is. And I know that because Jesus said there was. When uh, a um, scribe, I think it was, came to him and asked him what was the greatest commandment of them all, he uh, said and recorded in Mark 12, verse 30, the greatest commandment of all is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, you, uh, with all your uh, soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, he said, is the first commandment. The Greek is supreme. This is the greatest of all the commandments. So, guys, this then becomes the lens through which we view the new year through. This is that one verse is what we should do to gauge everything we do and say by. In other words, you know, if, if I do this, am I really proving I love God this year? If I if I say this, does it show that I really love God? Uh, I heard a story of a young woman who came to her pastor. She wanted to be godly. She wanted to dress modestly. And as the Bible says, and so she said, Pastor, how do I know if something I'm putting on is, is acceptable to God or is, is modest and, and something in, along those lines? He said, whatever you put on, look in the mirror and imagine Jesus standing next to you. And could he say to you, that honors me or it does not honor me? And go from there. This one statement, the greatest commandment in the Bible, can radically change much of what we do this year if we will hold it up to every thought, deed, and word. And I believe if we make this one commandment our goal and pursue it, then by God's grace and strength, we're going to see great changes in our lives this year. All right, let's break it down as we started to do last week. So this is still review. <clears throat> greatest commandment, what is the greatest? Jesus said that, first of all, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. I want you to take note that in the greatest command in the Bible, how God stresses the word all, all, that we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. The problem with all too many Christians in America today is that they're trying to love God while still loving the world. Now that's forbidden in Scripture. John said in 1 John 2.15, he said, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. When a person tries to love God and the world simultaneously, it's what God calls in his word having a divided heart. A divided heart. Now, when I think of someone in the Bible who personified that kind of heart, I think of Solomon. Solomon. You know... Solomon started out pretty well in his relationship with God as a young king. You can read 1 Kings 3, verses 3 to 13, and how that God appeared to Solomon one night and said, uh, you know, now he's a new king, uh, Solomon. And he said, uh, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I need wisdom, Lord. 
What do I know about being a king? I'm a young guy. I've never gone. I don't know how a king goes in and out. And, and I, want, I want to have wisdom so that I can, can, can rule your people uh, properly and equitably and, and that kind of thing. And God says, because you didn't ask for money or for the lives of your enemies or for, or for a long life, he said, I'm going to give you, but you asked for wisdom that you might be a better ruler of my people. I'm going to give you the wisdom and the, all the others. Wow, that's a good start. Okay, good start. Um, but, but after a while, it seemed that something was missing in Solomon's life. It seemed to him, okay? I mean, his heart seemed unsatisfied and empty. And so slowly he began to drift away from the Lord and began to pursue other things. Like many Christians today, I have seen this many times in 40 years of ministry, how some people as Christians start out really strong and on fire for the Lord. And over the course of time, maybe six months, a year, they slowly drift away. And sometimes I never see him again. You know, David, on the day he coronated his son, the new king of Israel, he admonished Solomon, among other things, to serve the Lord with a loyal heart. But then later on in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, the Holy Spirit tells us that Solomon's heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. The Hebrew word for loyal carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness. In other words, Solomon's heart was not completely given over to God. Solomon had a divided heart. Now, I believe Solomon knew the Lord. I believe he was, uh, was saved. But his heart was still restless. Again, like many Christians, uh, many people who I believe really are Christians, but their relationship with God doesn't really satisfy them. Uh, and so they're looking for fulfillment in other places. Yeah, the Lord, I love the Lord, but, but they're always pursuing something else of the world. And uh, this was Solomon. Now, even as his relationship with the Lord didn't satisfy him, uh, it did satisfy David. David's relationship with the Lord was all he wanted. In fact, you can read Psalm 27, where David says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to forever behold the beauty of the Lord. David, all he wanted to do was be in God's presence. He was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote half the psalms in the book of Psalms. I mean, he just would sit out there, no doubt, as a young guy, watching over his father's sheep by night, composing songs, looking up into the night sky, noticing the, the vastness of the heavens, and, and he would incorporate the wonders of nature into his, uh, into his psalms, his songs to God. I mean, he just loved the Lord. He constantly composed love songs to God. Now, I know he wasn't perfect. We know David was not a perfect man. Uh, he did commit some pretty egregious sins, but in his heart, he did love the Lord. You can love God and blow it. Okay, sometimes pretty severe. But, but David, in fact, God called David a man after his own heart because he, God knew he had a love in his heart for the Lord that was genuine, right? Solomon didn't have that. And because Solomon wasn't fulfilled in his walk or relationship with God, uh, he slowly began to drift. And when he did, he uh, tried to fill the void in his heart with all kinds of worldly things that didn't satisfy because they can't. He spent most of his life in a backslidden state. You can read about his testimony of this in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
where Solomon talked about how he started out well, but then he, he started looking for fulfillment in different places. He got into, uh, you know, uh, education. He studied everything he could get his hands on. He got into pleasure. He had 700 wives, 300, uh, he had the 700 wives, 300 concubines. Uh, he uh, got into building projects because he thought that would be a legacy. That would fulfill him. Uh, business. He started an import-export business and, and so on and so forth. I mean, he did all these things. He lived most of his life in a backslidden state. Near the end of his life, he wises up pretty, must be the wisest guy in the face of the earth, um, but he didn't act so wise, and he admits that. I'll paraphrase. I wasn't so wise for most of my life. Should have listened to my dad. He told me what life was all about. Serve the Lord with a loyal heart, willing mind. Solomon, pursue him, seek him. He'll be found by you. Forsake him, he'll, he'll be, forsake you. I should have listened. But at the end of his life, he comes back full circle and um, talks about the mistakes he made and tries to, in the last couple of chapters, tries to focus his uh, words to the young people. Don't make the mistake I did. I'm telling you this so that you don't make the same mistake, Solomon said, that I made. And you can read what he said to these young people. But again, Jesus told us that we can't serve two masters, God and the world. God and money, but God and the world. For we will inevitably love the one and neglect the other, or even love the one to the, and despise the other. There's a lot of Christians who, they're carnal. I'm not saying they're not saved, but they're carnal. And their relationship with the Lord doesn't really do it for them, so they're always trying to split their heart with, between God and the world. And um, then they look at you folks, some of you who are spirit-filled on fire, and because they don't want to think that they're deficient, so they say, I'm normal, you're a fanatic. You're, you're a radical, you're a fanatic, I don't have to be that way, I can love God and so on and so on. But you know, they see your walk, they see you're at peace, you're not striving, you have joy, and they don't because the world can never give you peace and joy, the things of this world. And so they lash out and uh, they begin to despise you, your walk, and ultimately the Lord you serve because their walk with Christ is not doing it for them, but that's their own fault, really. Look, God wants all of us. He wants all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. To offer God any less means that other loves have taken hold in our heart and are competing with our love for God. And that's unacceptable to him because God has made a full-on commitment to you and me. Jesus died for us. You can't get a, a, a greater commitment than that, right? And here we are telling him we love him, but then we have in our hearts these other loves, just like Israel had the idols in their hearts, even as they claimed that they loved the Lord, right? It would be like a, a wife telling her husband, I love you, but then she's got a, 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 a secret lover on the side. You know, God won't tolerate that. And it's not going to be a blessing in our lives to try to divide our love between God and the world. As Jesus said, you got to choose, or uh, Joshua said, you got to choose this day whom you're going to serve, uh, God or the gods of this world. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, guys, as we said last time, to love God with all your heart means that you have to purpose certain things in your heart. It's not going to happen by accident. It's got to happen on purpose, okay? And I'll just read these to you because we went through these last week. 
and you can get the CD or go online. But um, under the heading of loving God with all your heart, you have to purpose certain things. First of all, you have to purpose in your heart to live a life of obedience and commitment to God. That's loving God. Secondly, purpose in your heart to control what comes out of your mouth. We talked about lying and gossip. That should not be uh, named among uh, believers. But in the book of Proverbs, it tells us that, yes, our tongue can be used either for great good or great evil. It can be used by our words to build people up and bring healing into their lives, or it can be used to cut people down and destroy. So it's not just what comes out of your mouth in the way of what is evil, don't do that, but also what comes out of your mouth in the way of what's godly and will edify and will build up and so on. Number three, you have to purpose in your heart to honor God with your finances. We talked about giving to God. Uh, and believe me, if you're new with us, uh, we don't talk about money here at Calvary. We believe where God guides, He provides. So we, you know, if I talk about money, it's because we've come to a scripture that teaches it, and so I'll talk about it. We said last time uh, that you know we don't give to God because He needs it. God needs nothing. He's God. He can do whatever He wants. He doesn't need us. He allows us to give to Him some of what He's given to us. <laughs> a good deal so that he can bless us and as paul said if you sow a little money into the kingdom you'll reap a little rewards you sow a lot you'll reap great rewards okay but um a lot of times christians say well i don't have any money to give to god this week because um i've spent it all on myself basically uh you know hey you can, you're free to do that again god has kept this church going for 40 years i don't have to ask for money i just i just go to him if we have a need and there have been numerous times where it looked like, wow, Lord, we're going to have to get off the radio, and, but I'm not going to beg for money because this is what you've ordained. You put us on the radio. If you want to take us off, that's completely up to you. We'd love to stay on, but we're going to just, you know, and look to you to provide if you want us to keep us. But otherwise, we're, we're ready to, to get off. We're, we're not married to anything that God has led us into. It's all what he wants, right? And, and, and never came to you and said, please, will you give? The radio ministry is going to come. You know, it's going to fold if we don't. Never. And right after we, it's a test. God wants to, he knows, but he wants us to know who we're going to, you know, am I going to really trust him as leaders? Or are we going to have to go to man, put our faith in man? Right after we said, no, Lord, we're just going to trust you. And if you want to take it, we're off. Right after that, we get big offerings, 30,000 in the mail one time, a couple weeks, another 30,000. Um, out of nowhere, people that didn't even know we had a need, just God telling us, okay, just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm in control and you really trust me, and, and he took care of it. This is how God operates in our lives many times. But, um, again, it's all a walk of faith, you know. But God gives us some money that we might then turn around and give it back to him in some way. And the fourth one is, this year you have to purpose in your under the title, Loving God with All Your Heart, purpose in your heart to bring God into every substantive decision. Too many Christians are still living their lives like they're still in charge, making important life decisions without praying and asking God what he wants them to do. I think a lot of that is because they don't really want to know what God wants because God might say no. And I really want to marry this person. I've been praying a long time, you know, and I, this is the one. I don't need to pray. This is, this is the one, you know. And that's shocking to me. And it's happened over the years many times where um, Christians will, I'll find out that they made a very important life decision and 
I come to, they didn't pray about it. They just winged it. If they do pray, it's after they made the decision, they pray to ask for God to bless what they've decided. And that's backward, okay? So if you want to love God with all your heart, you have to purpose in your heart to bring God into every decision. It's just amazing to me when Christians do this and they just wing it and don't really pray and, and, and bring God into the decision to ask Him what He wants, and then everything blows up and it's a big catastrophe, you'd be shocked at how many times they turn around and blame God. Well, Lord, why didn't you stop me? You could have stopped me. Well, God says, well, I gave you a free will. You didn't want my input. You didn't want my guidance. I let you do what you wanted to do. You know, we, we can't blame God when that happens, okay? I mean, the, in the Proverbs, Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. The Hebrews bring him into every decision, and he will direct your path. All right. The second um, principle, or the second uh, part of that uh, great commandment, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul. Guys, as we have said before, the soul is the seat of the emotions. So when we talk about loving God with all of our soul, we're talking about having a passion for God, a passion for God. Um, let me try to illustrate this this way, okay? Uh, say you're a, a, a young Christian guy, and you've been praying that God would bring, uh, you know, a woman into your life that you might uh, spend the rest of your life with. And you meet a gal. She's a Christian, of course. Uh, you meet a gal, and you start to date. And you fall head and heels in love with this gal, okay? And you come to her one day as a guy and tell her that you want to take your relationship to the highest level of commitment. You want to marry her. And you propose marriage to her. And here's what she says in response, okay? Well, I just want to be friends. Ouch. That, you know, that is the, or if you're a girl and you really want this guy you've been seeing, you, you love this guy, you want him to marry you, and you kind of hint at it and hint at it, and finally he just went, I just want to be friends. It crushes you, right? It absolutely crushes you. But this is what many Christians say to the Lord. Now, first of all, let me just say this. There are many non-Christian church goers that the Lord is wanting them to come into a marriage relationship with, with him by receiving Christ, okay? But what about the Christians who, people who are Christians, who have entered into that relationship because we're betrothed to Christ, and, and, and technically we are married to him. We're waiting to celebrate the marriage supper, but technically we're married to him, okay? Jesus is, you, know, you have your, your superficial marriages, then you have your deep marriages. You have people that are married that it's a very shallow relationship and you have people that are married that's very deep, very intimate. They're really committed with each other, to each other, one with each other. That is the level that Jesus always wants to bring all of his people to. And so he's always working through his spirit to bring us into the deepest kind of commitment and intimacy he can possibly have with us this side of heaven. But you know what a lot of Christians say to him? Lord, I really just want to be friends. You know, I'm saved. That's all I really care about, that kind of thing. And, be, and they do that because they're in love with the world. 
yeah, they love the Lord, but they, they're really also in love with the world. One pastor said this, and I quote, he said, How sad when a Christian through carnality and compromise is satisfied with living at a lower level of the Spirit and a lower level of relationship with Jesus than that full-on, totally committed level that allows them to enjoy their relationship with Him to the fullest, end quote. Look, casual Christianity has become a real problem in the church today. It's a real problem in the culture. I just read last year how that, for the first time in American history, there are more young people living together out of wedlock than there are those living together who are married. This, it's all this mentality today. People don't want to make commitments. They, 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 they want to have it easy and, and simple and marriage is a commitment that if I want out, I have to get a divorce. It's messy. It's expensive. I'd rather just live with this person than if it doesn't work out, because I'm always looking for a better deal, right, out of these people. Uh, I'll just walk out the door and be done with it. And the church has kind of allowed this mentality uh, to, to, to filter into churches. And this casual Christianity has become a real problem in the church today where too many Christians just want to be quote-unquote friends with Jesus or want to go on perpetually dating Jesus instead of making that full-on commitment to him as in marriage. But to compensate, to make themselves feel better, they substitute service for passion. Kind of an interesting thing. I have seen this uh, I've seen it in my own life, too, by the way, where things aren't really right with the Lord, and maybe there's an area of your life you're not getting right with Him. And so you know the relationship is not where it should be, but to compensate, you throw yourself into more activities, you know, more Bible reading, more church services, more working with the church in the soup kitchen or whatever it might be. There's this interesting thing that, that you know, sometimes we, we don't want to pursue the relationship because, you know, it involves a greater commitment, but I'll pursue the activities. It's like a, a husband and wife, or, you know, where there's a problem in the marriage and, uh, and they're not really w willing to work on the relationship, so they just pour themselves into housework and chores and different things or this is not going to make the marriage better. This is the problem with a lot of uh, Christians today. They feel better when they're involved in ministry and Christian works of service, but they're not really dealing with their relationship with Jesus. It's be like, uh, like uh, uh, somebody who always went to marriage seminars, but never actually worked on their marriage, okay? Turn to Ephesians. I said that first service too. It's, it's about the Ephesians. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus dictated seven letters to seven churches that John wrote down for us. And in chapter 2, starting with verse 1, he talks, uh, he writes this, he um, speaks this letter to the church of Ephesus. And when you read this, you come away initially thinking, wow, this is a pretty good church. In fact, the Lord acknowledges in many ways it was a good church, but they had one glaring problem. Verse 2, Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. 
And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake. The Greek is to the point of exhaustion and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. You see all these positive things that the Lord identifies? All these positive qualities all negated by one negative. They were going through the motions, but they had lost the emotion in their relationship with Jesus. We could say in today's vernacular, the church, this church was a well-oiled machine. But Jesus doesn't want machines cranking out emotionless service. He wants a love relationship with his people. Again, Jesus said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not that you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And notice he doesn't say they lost their first love. Very important. He said they what? Left. They walked away from their relationship with Jesus. It was a process. It didn't happen instantly. Not even overnight, but slowly because of what they were not doing, they began to drift. And finally, they left the Lord. Interesting, they left the Lord in their heart, but they were still present in church. Now, meditate on that a little bit. Because if we think if we're in church, we're right with God. Only heathens don't go to church. I'm, I'm in church, you know. Well, that's great. I'd rather see you in church than not in church. But your body could be here and your heart could be somewhere else. In fact, I know people looking at their watch. I know you're thinking the football game's starting soon. This guy's got to get finished. Your, your body is here. Or afterwards, we're going off for, you know, ice cream. You know, hurry up, Pat. Look, your body is here. Your heart is not here. Now, God knows that really well, Okay. But they didn't lose their first love. They left it. Uh, Weymouth, a translation of the New Testament, put it this way. Yet I have this against you, that you no longer love me as you did at first. What is first love? Well, it's the passionate love for Jesus that often characterizes a new believer. It is excited, fervent, unashamed kind of love. You know, you first got saved, you don't care who knew. You, you carried your Bible under your arm everywhere you went. You had bumper stickers all over your car. You were wearing a Jesus t-shirt. When I got saved, Jesus t-shirts were pretty popular, you know. I wore them everywhere, okay? And, um, and, and, and so you didn't care. You didn't care. Who knew that you loved Jesus? Um, this first love is also a, a honeymoon love, uh, often of a, a, of a husband or wife who has just gotten married. And while it is true that when you're married for a while, the love deepens. It becomes richer. It's also true that the emotion and the desire for each other should never be missing. It should always be present. Okay, we first fall in love, and, and we, then we get married and have our, hon our honeymoon. I mean, our emotions are running pretty high. You're married for 10, 15, 20, 30 years or whatever. Uh, you know, the love is there, but it's deepened. It's not the real emotional highs. That's why a lot of people get divorced. They're not in love with a person. They're in love with a feeling. 
And they're in love with love. And so when the feeling wears off, and, and it would be replaced with a deep love if they would just hang in there, they're off finding somebody new. This is our culture again, right? But married love is a deep love. If it's a good marriage, it's a deep love. And, but it should never lose the emotion and desire for one another either. The word, the word Ephesus, guys, means darling. Darling or desired one. The worst thing that can happen to any relationship, whether you're talking about your relationship with each other as husband and wife or your relationship with, with God, is when you begin to take the other for granted. In marriage, this becomes pretty sad. You no longer desire each other. There's no more passion. There's no more feelings of emotion at all. Uh, you hang in there and you're going through the motions. Each of you have your responsibilities. But what, you happen, what happens then is you've turned into roommates. You're, you're, not, you're not really two people in marriage. Legally you are. But for all intents and purposes, you've entered into a roommate arrangement. You got your mutual chores and you both chip in, but the passion is not there. You say, well, I don't understand, Phil, how somebody could serve like this, Ephesians, you know, uh, Revelation 2, verses 2 to 4, how somebody in a church could serve like this and not love the Lord. Guys, people serve in church for all kinds of reasons. We've talked about this. Some do it out of guilt. What do you mean? Well, the pastor gets up there and he's, you know, Oh, we got to help us. You know, we don't have anybody to work the nursery, these poor kids, or we don't have Sunday school teachers. And, and you know, if you don't help out, then what? how are these kids going to know about Jesus? Oh, okay, I'll go and I'll work. You know, so they serve out of guilt, okay? Others serve in the church out of a desire for recognition. This is a big one. People want to be noticed. They want to be in the spotlight. Look at me. I'm doing this ministry. I'm doing that ministry. Pastor thinks pretty highly of me. He lets me do these things. Or some people serve in the church out of the, the, the feeling of it brings fulfillment into their life. I had a guy years ago who said that his wife uh, served in our Sunday school ministry because it built her self-esteem and made her feel fulfilled. And I said, I, thank you. I tell your wife, I thank her for her service. But the, the purpose of ministry is not to build your self-esteem or to make you feel fulfilled. It's to serve Jesus out of, out of love for him. I mean, th there's a lot of reasons why people will serve in the church. The, the church at Ephesus, though, was a church that was busy serving all kinds of things. But in the course of serving, they fell into the trap of thinking that loveless service was enough to please the Lord. Because all the Lord wants is service, okay? doesn't matter what the heart is saying. As long as my body is going through the motions, that's all he wants. Well, it isn't. And I've used this illustration before. It's like the wife who comes to her husband after years of marriage and says, you know what? I don't love you anymore. I, I have no feelings for you at all. I'm dead inside. But I'm, I'm going to stay married to you. And I'm going to, you know, I don't know, cook your meals and clean your clothes and and, and straighten up your house or whatever, you know. I mean, what husband, when his wife comes and says this to him, would say, well, I can deal with that. Yeah, I can live with that. Obviously, nobody. No husband in his right mind would, uh, would accept that. 
Look, again, I didn't marry my wife because I wanted somebody to cook my meals and clean my house. I could have hired a maid to do that. I married Cindy because when I met her, I fell in love with her after we dated for a while. And she with me. And now everything she does for me and for our kids and grandkids, and she does an awful lot, I know, talking about me, I know that everything she does for me is special because I know it's an expression of that love. Without the love, it would be meaningless, right? It only finds meaning to me because I know she loves me. This is how Jesus, he's not less than us, he's more than us. I mean, you think Jesus is satisfied with loveless service simply because we're going through the motions? Of course he isn't. Of course he isn't. You know what he wants? He wants some romance. Is that so wrong? He's married to us. Is that wrong that he wants a little romance, a little emotion, a little passion in what we do for him? Remember, he is holding his church in his nail-scarred hands. You can't get a greater expression of love than that to die for somebody you love. Here he is with those nail-scarred hands holding us by the face and saying, I love you so much. I want to have the deepest kind of relationship this side of heaven with you I can possibly have. And we say, Lord, I just want to be friends. Oh, I'm saved. That's all he really wanted. Wow. I mean, when's the last time you told the Lord, I love you? And it wasn't tied to anything you wanted from him. Don't we do that? There are marriages that have so degenerated over the years that husbands and wives only tell each other, I love you, because they're looking to get something. He wants sex. He wants a new piece of jewelry. I don't know. Something, right? Material. The I love you is not genuine. It's tied. It's manipulative. It's tied to something you're looking to get in return. There's a lot of Christians that approach their relationship with Jesus that way. Well, how do you fix the problem? Jesus goes on in verse 5 of Revelation 2. He, he gives us the, the fix, all right? He says to this church, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. Guys, first love can be restored. It can be because you left Jesus. If you come back, it'll be restored. But here's what he said. First love can be restored if we follow three instructions that he gave. First, we need to remember what we have left, not lost, left, and cultivate a desire to regain that close communion with him once again. This is what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, preparing your heart. Or, uh, you know, there are things you have to, um, um, to know what the problem is, right? And purpose, uh, purpose in your heart. I mean... Coming back to the Lord starts with the recognition there's a problem with my walk with God. And then I purpose that I want to see this problem resolved. It starts with that, identifying the problem, right? To uh, remember how it used to be in our walk with God. Then we must repent. Repentance simply means to have a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. I recognize, wait a minute. I'm not getting closer to God. I've been a Christian for 10 years. I'm getting farther from God. I'm not going in the right direction. I identify the problem. I remember where I used to be with him. And then I repent. I have a change of mind that, I, that then by God's grace, he gives me the power to have a change of direction, change of action. I start to correct what is going on that is making me farther from God. And then thirdly, we must repent. As Jesus said in verse 5, do the first 
works. Now you say, well, wait, wait a minute, though. What does that really mean? What does that really mean? Well, one pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, what were you doing when you first were on fire for the Lord? Well, I was going to church. He said, go again. I was getting up early for morning, de morning devotions. Do it again. I sang praise to the Lord as I drove down the street. Sing again. Remember how your relationship used to be. This works great in marriage. My marriage is really not in a good place. Well, are you treating your spouse the way you did when you first got married on your honeymoon? Oh, no. What were you doing back then? I'd bring her flowers. Bring her flowers again. I would clean up the house so that when she came home, it was spotless. Clean it up again. I picked my dirty underwear off the, off the ground when I you know, pick it up again. You're taking a woman for granted. Stop it. Appreciate her. You're taking the Lord for granted, Christian. Stop it. Appreciate him. Get back to what you once did when you first fell in love with Jesus, right? So remember, repent, repeat. This is the three-step instruction to restoring your relationship with Jesus. Now, let me bring this to a close by saying this. There are many Christians who have gotten so used to staying away from the Lord. I'm talking about staying away. You know, they're not going to church like they used to. They're not reading their Bible like they used to. They're not having daily devotions like they once did. And for them, it's happened for so long, it's now become the Christian norm. When you talk about spending every morning in devotions to God, you're a radical. You're a fanatic. I'm normal. But none of us ever want to think we're not normal, okay? So whatever I do is normal. You, you're, you're a crazy, you're a crazy fanatic, okay? But, but this is the mindset. They, they've gotten so used to this mediocre, kind of lukewarm relationship with Jesus, it's now become the norm, the standard by which I judge everybody else's relationship. And they think their relationship or their walk with God is fine, is fine. But it's not fine. They're trying to live a static Christian life and a holding pattern. Let me just tell you, either you're moving forward or you're sliding backwards, that's all there is to it. That's why the Lord calls it a walk, implies motion. You're either going forward every day, walking with him, or you're sliding backwards. Nobody lives a Christian life that is good and, and normal and fruitful when they're in a holding pattern or in a static way. It doesn't happen that way. Now, of course, in their minds, they've gotten... Here's how they think, that... Over the, I've been a Christian for 20 years, they'll, they'll say, okay? And, uh, you know, for many of those years, I was in church all the time. I read the Bible every day, and you know what? I've gotten enough church, enough Bible, so that I don't need any more. You know, my, my, that, all that I learned in the past and so on will sustain me now. God and I are fine. We're good. And because of it, the thought of having daily quiet time, Bible reading, and church twice a week is more of a burden than a joy and unnecessary. But listen, you're kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. And the devil's behind it. You need to identify that you're not right with God. You're not maintaining. You're sliding backward. And you need to repent and return and do your first works. Fall in love with Jesus again. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, 
most, many of you here have heard me say that for many years, many years. I started out my day by reading my Bible. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I don't require as much sleep. So, you know, in, in those days, it was nothing. I still get up very early, but it was nothing for me to wake up at 3.30, make a cup of, co- a cup of coffee, go into my front room, turn on the light, open my Bible, and I would read the Bible for two, two and a half hours sometimes. I'm not just saying that because I, I want you to know how spiritual I am. That I just desired it. It was wonderful. And then somewhere along the line, and it might have been because there was something going on in the world where I started to uh, get up early and uh, turn on my computer and read the news, okay? And then that became the norm. That became the norm. Now, let me just say this to you, okay? For me, the news is like junk food. I crave it. But if you stuff yourself full of it, especially in the first thing in the morning, it doesn't promote health. It makes you sick. You're full of anger, rage. I want to throw something. <laughs> These liars. These liars. I just get, you know. And, and, but it's like junk food. I craved it, you know. So because of this series, I felt like the time had come for me to start practicing what I preach. So I, I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go point by point over the message. I, I know what's coming. I know what I'm prepared. And I'm going to start, by your grace, applying this. So... I got, you know, a few days ago, I went ahead and made sure I got everything out that I use. I got my Bible out. I got my notebook. I got my, my that hot new devotional that, that just came up by that young author, uh, <laughs> Philip A. Ballmeyer, I think his name was. Um, I, put, I put that with a fresh highlighter and a, a pen, okay? And, 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 and I got up the next morning. I pulled everything out, and I started reading my Bible. Now, initially, I felt like I was having withdrawals, Okay? Because, you know, in the, in the hurry up and read a few verses and go back and, read, and go read the news, okay? Oh, no, that's not happening, okay? Lord, I need grace. So, you know, I, and, and, but, but after a few days, the, the craving for junk food was, was gone, and now I've been really enjoying that time, opening my Bible. And I have a t- I practice of reading some of the old, a psalm, and some of the new. And then I'll even then read over what we're going to be studying that Wednesday, and I'll meditate on it and see if God's got some special thing he wants to share with me. It's amazing how that, you know, if you live on junk food, the thought of eating broccoli (laughs) is nauseating, right? But if you start to eat better, eventually, after a few days a week, you start to crave good food. And you don't crave the junk food. Guys, this is what I am saying. I know that, you know, some of you here are used to eating junk food like me, whether it be news or watching sports or dancing with the stars. (laughs) Turn off the news, the sports, and especially dancing with the stars and get your Bible out. I know you don't crave it. I know it's not something that's wrong. I'm just craving the, but do it. And God will give you grace to continue and you'll begin to crave the good stuff. It's okay to start small. It's okay to start small. Okay? You have to, you know, the longest journey starts with a single what? Step. Just to, to start, Lord, I just want to draw close to you. I know I need to get up in the morning, and, and but I'm tired and I, 
but Lord, give me grace to get up maybe a, a half hour early and just start there or 15 minutes just so I can just take 15 minutes in your word. Hell on to that. And I guarantee you after 15 minutes, you do that for a while, it might be a half hour. You might be getting up an hour early because you're craving the word of God. So may God give us grace and uh, may he continue to bless these studies so that this year is really a year of dynamic change and fruitfulness for him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and how it is nourishment to us. It's good food, nutritious food for our spirit. And we ask you, Lord, to work in each of our hearts this new year, that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and with all of our strength, that that would be the passion, that that would be the focus, that that would be the change we take aim at, that by your grace, then, you would give us strength to make the changes. And, uh, Lord, that we would draw close to you. This would be a dynamic year of fruitfulness and so on. Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.